Please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 25. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people be ready for the third day do not go near a woman on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people come through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. 
This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. In Exodus 19, the people of Israel finally make it to Mount Sinai. And I say finally because Moses has been waiting for this moment for a long period of time. If you don't remember, let me remind you. Back in Exodus chapter 3, God told Moses this was going to happen. So if you've got a Bible, you might flip back 16 chapters to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was not yet known as a prophet. He was not yet a spiritual leader. He was not yet famous at all. He was just a shepherd. He certainly wasn't the mighty deliverer of God's people, how he has now been remembered in history. He was just a shepherd wandering around, taking care of some sheep. And while he was wandering around, he came to a mountain called Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb, which at that time was not a famous mountain. But on that mountain... He looked up and he saw something strange. This was the famous scene, you remember. He saw a bush that was lit up with fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And Moses thought, I got to get closer. I got to see this. And as he approached, the voice of God spoke to Moses out of the mountain and said, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. And in this place, God revealed his name to Moses. He said, I am That I am. In other words, I'm the all sufficient, eternal creator of all things. He also identified himself as the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who keeps his promises. And God called Moses to come nearer to enter into a relationship with God that was going to change everything. And then God commissioned Moses to be the deliverer who would say to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. All that happened on Mount Sinai, this mountain in in Exodus chapter 3. And in the middle of all that, we get verse 12. Look with me at Exodus 3, 12, if you got your Bible. He said, that is the Lord speaking, the Lord said to Moses, but I will be with you. Those are the words you want to hear if you're going to go do any big spiritual mission. Those are the words Jesus said to us. I am with you always. God said to Moses, I will be with you and this will be the sign for you. That I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, on this mountain. Can you imagine what's going through Moses's head in Exodus 19, verse one? They reached and camp at the wilderness of Sinai, verse two, Israel camped before the mountain. And then verse three, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain. So he's going up. He used to know this as just an ordinary mountain when he was a shepherd. But then there was that day that changed everything in Moses's life. Scared Moses. You remember Moses tried really hard to get out of this job. I'm not good at speaking. I'm small. You got the wrong guy. And as God kept meeting Moses's arguments with promises and reassurances, finally Moses just said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Send somebody up. I want the people to be free. Just use somebody else to do it. That sounds a little like some of us, doesn't it? I want everybody in the world to hear the gospel. I want every people group to be reached with the gospel. I want to make disciples. I want every fatherless kid in South Oklahoma City to have a mentor. Please, God, send somebody. But we don't necessarily want to pay that price. And yet God said to Moses, no, you're going. 
and I will be with you. And he says, here's a promise. Here's a sign. After you've done it all and you've seen my power, when I deliver my people, you're going to come back right here on this mountain and serve me. And now it's come true. The promises of God have been fulfilled. Mount Sinai now becomes a famous mountain. Mount Sinai is going to have an important place in the spiritual imaginations of God's people, Jews and Christians. Mount Sinai is going to come to have a very important place in the imagery of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I believe that as we Christians in Oklahoma City in the 21st century study this passage today, that the Spirit of God wants to do a sanctifying, renewing work in our imaginations to teach us some really important things about who God is and who we are. At Mount Sinai, God's going to reveal some important things about who God is and who we are. So I want to ask you real quick to bow your heads with me. And I just want to invite you to pray a simple prayer to God. Then I'm going to pray for you. Would you just cry out from your heart and say, Lord, teach me. I want to know who you are and I want to know who I am in Christ. Show me who you are. Show me who I am today. Father, I want to join my prayers with the silent prayers coming from the hearts of these sisters and brothers right now. I want to confess my own weakness, my own need for your grace, your forgiveness, your cleansing, your empowerment, your instruction. And I want to pray for all of us in the precious name of Jesus, our mediator. And based on the blood of his covenant, I come to you boldly saying, God, show us who you are. Show us yourself today and show us who we are in Christ as your treasured possession, beloved, a holy nation, a, a kingdom of priests. Show us our identity in Christ today in a way that is going to awaken in us faith, hope, love, joy, and radical courage to do what you've called us to do. Forgive us, cleanse us, and teach us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As God is teaching us about his character and nature and about our identity, I think there's three key things that are revealed at Mount Sinai, which then are picked up in the New Testament. These three things revealed at Sinai are like signposts pointing forward to a greater fulfillment and a greater revelation in Jesus Christ. And the first thing revealed in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai is that God is holy. We've got to talk about the holiness of God. So everybody say holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Lord. The word holy only shows up once in Exodus 19 and the mountain is called holy because of God's presence. God is the one who makes it holy because God is the holy one. But the imagery throughout Exodus chapter 19 is typical biblical imagery of holiness. And I want to pay attention to this imagery and think about what God is trying to do in our hearts and minds. Look with me, especially at verses 16 through 24. I just want to read through those verses again and pause to point out some things as we go. The text says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. So picture a big, powerful storm. We know about stormy skies in Oklahoma, don't we? How sometimes it can be a bright, sunshiny day and then just a few hours pass. And there's an awe-inspiring scene. And some of us crazy Okies do that thing where 
the siren is going off, and yet you can hear in the background that whatever life-threatening situation is still a couple miles away, so we're standing on our front porch. Got like the bicycle helmet on, you got the closet ready, but you're looking because you can't take your eyes off of this awe-inspiring scene. It's powerful, it's beautiful in a way, but it's also terrifying. And that's what is being described right here. The cloud, the thick cloud is a common biblical image, which is carrying this idea that though God speaks to us and reveals himself to us and wants us to know him, we can never, our vision can never penetrate to see his essence. We're finite creatures and our vision is clouded by sin and we're looking towards him but can't quite see. The text continues, and there was a very loud trumpet blast, majestic noise. These are sort of supernatural God created special effects to get the attention of God's people. Big, thick clouds, flashing lightning, lighting up the clouds, thunder rumbling, a loud trumpet blast. And it has the effect that you might expect. Second half of verse 16 says, so that all the people in the camp trembled. What they're learning is the fear of God, the fear of God. That's been a key phrase in Exodus. Everybody say the fear of God. A holy reverence, a trembling before the mighty one. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp. And you might underline these three words. This is what it's all about. He brought them out of the camp to meet God. God wants the people to know him. He wants the people to meet him. He wants the people to have a relationship with him. In order to do that, they need to know who he is. He's trying to shock them. He's giving them attention with These great special effects to say, look at my power, look at my holiness. Says they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're not going up on the mountain. They're keeping their distance, but they're they're getting closer. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. So there is another symbol. Smoke like the cloud symbolizes the fact that we're looking to see God, but he's mysterious. He's always beyond what we've grasped. He's always greater than what we've yet comprehended it also is connected to the theme of fire because the verse continues mount sinai was wrapped in smoke because the lord had descended on it in fire so imagine you're looking up at this powerful mountain it lights up with a mighty storm thunder lightning a loud trumpet and then it says he descended on it in fire so i don't know what this looked like maybe some big fireball out of the sky comes down and all of a sudden the cloud which was already being lit up occasionally by lightning, now has this glowing, red-hot center of flame. Fire, we've talked about a lot in Exodus. The burning bush, the pillar of fire. It's a fitting symbol of God's holiness because it simultaneously attracts and repels, right? It's beautiful, it's light, it's color, it's movement, it's warmth, and we want to come closer, just like they're coming up close to this mountain, but if you get too close... You might get burned, which is the reality for sinful people. When we talk about God's holiness, so far I've just been giving you special effects, but let's try something towards like a definition. When we're talking about God's holiness, we're talking about God's absolute uniqueness and his absolute goodness. He's unique. There's none like him. No one is powerful like God. No one is loving like God. No one is the self-existent creator of all things like God. And he's perfectly good. Pure goodness with no mixture of evil of any kind. 
So we're talking about God's goodness. This is the life giving goodness that brings all reality into existence. This is the fountain of being, the fountain of joy. And yet, if you're a sinful creature, this goodness can be too much to handle. It can consume your sinfulness. And so the image of fire is used. Pure love, pure goodness, holy mercy that is yet threatening to consume sinful human beings. And so they're keeping their distance. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. So you can see the smoke rising up as far as you can see. And it's not just the people that tremble. The verse, verse 18 says the whole mountain trembled greatly. So there's an earthquake. You can see it. You can hear it. You can feel it. There's something powerful happening here. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The voice of the Lord is thundering out from the mountain. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. That's an interesting thought. The people are scared, they're terrified, and yet they're drawn to this. And God says, you've got to warn these people, because if these sinful people, I mean, we've been hanging out with Israel for a few months, and they are a lot like the people that we know, stubborn, rebellious, quick to forget God's mercy. They're sinful people. And God says, if this sinful people, in their fascination about my holiness and goodness and beauty, runs into this mountain... Recklessly, they come to me on their terms instead of my terms. They will die. Warn them. Lest they break through to the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who, like Moses, have some role to represent God to the people and the people to God. Look what verse 22 says. Let the priests who come to the near to the Lord consecrate themselves. They've got to go through rituals to prepare their hearts and minds to respectfully enter the presence of God, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Let me just summarize for you the, the imagery we've talked about. Imagery of God's holiness. Thunder and lightning. Thick cloud. Loud trumpet blast. A mountain wrapped in smoke. Holy fire descending on the top of the mountain. The mountain trembling with a violent earthquake. The voice of God calling for Moses. It sounds like thunder. And then the warning of danger for sinners. Now, we've got to ask the question, how is this designed to make us think about God? How is, what is this supposed to do in our feelings? How is this designed to make us feel about God? Because this is in the text of Scripture, because the Spirit of God is trying to shine light into our minds and trying to reform our affections so that we think and feel rightly about the reality of who God is. What's it designed to do? I want to say from... From the jump, there might be some motion, emotions that are evoked by this imagery that are sort of understandable, but would ultimately be misleading. And we've got to name them from the beginning. What is this not saying? 
This imagery is not designed to depict God as fundamentally angry or mean or vindictive or moody. That's not it. And I know that for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the whole book of Exodus, not to mention the rest of the Bible, but the whole book of Exodus repeatedly and consistently teaches us to think of God as the God of mercy, justice, compassion and steadfast love. At the beginning of this story, he's the God who gently comes near to stubborn, sinful people, who sees them, who hears their groaning, who has compassion on him. One of the great moments of God's self-revelation in Exodus is going to be in chapter 34, in which the Lord passes before Moses with awe-inspiring self-revelations, much like this. But the first words that come out of God's mouth in that scene are this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful And gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In other words, Exodus has been telling us he's a God of kindness. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of steadfast love. He forgives sin. He's also a God of justice who punishes evil and who will thwart oppressive people like Pharaoh. But he even gave them a lot of chances to repent. He's goodness. He's mercy. So if we're thinking of this, if, if, if we're reading this imagery and we're getting feelings or thoughts about God that we feel like God's basically mean, he's fundamentally angry, wrath is the core of who God is, we're missing it. Rather, I think what God is doing here is revealing the weight and the glory of his goodness. And what another way to put this would be what we're seeing here is that the goodness of God is too much for sinful human beings to handle. The goodness of God is too much for sinful human beings to handle. All of his deeds are good. That includes his wrath when he's poured out on sin. But all of his deeds are good. It's pure. It's everything we long to be. It's good. But the goodness of God for sinful, rebellious human beings threatens to consume our badness. His kindness threatens to consume our meanness. His love threatens to consume our hate. He's saying, take me seriously. Learn to tremble before me so that I can show you my heart. This should cause us to tremble. Ultimately, it should lead us to tremble with hope and joy. But so far, what it's doing is helping us to recognize we need God. We want God. We love God. But as sinful human beings, we've got a problem. Given the fact that God is holy, which leads us to the second point that we see revealed at Sinai. The sinful people need a mediator. Now, that's a key word. Everybody say mediator. The sinful people need a mediator if they are going to enjoy relationship with the holy God. Now, this text repeatedly identifies Moses as God's chosen mediator at this moment in history. I'm just going to show you a couple of the places. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. So Moses and came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And... All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses repeated the words of the people to the Lord. You see, God talks to Moses. 
Then Moses goes and tells the people, here's what God said. Then the people talk to Moses and Moses goes back to God and says, here's what the people say. A mediator is a go-between. It's an in-between. In conflict resolution, if we want to do peacemaking in the body of Christ, sometimes we can't work things out, so we need a mediator who's going to sit down with us and listen and translate and help us hear each other and work through these things as we're moving towards peace and justice and reconciliation and truth together. A mediator is a go-between. Moses here is acting as the mediator. Look with me. Again, at verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. But look what it says next. We talked about this. They take their stand where? At the foot of the mountain. But Moses goes up the mountain. They are coming near to God, but not too near, lest they be consumed rather for their sin. But Moses, the holy man of God, whom God has consecrated, God has given permission to come near, to represent the people to God and to represent God to the people. Again, verses 20 and 21. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So he goes all the way up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. If they do what you're doing, Moses, they're going to die. Moses is the mediator. He's representing God to the people and he's representing the people to God. God has chosen him for this task. Now, in a minute, we're going to come back and talk about this mediator. But spoiler alert, the people needed Moses to be a mediator. But Moses was not a perfect mediator. Moses himself is a sinner who's not going to get to go into the promised land. He's pointing us forward to a greater mediator. Let's let you have a chance to guess. Who do you think he's talking about? Good answer. Moses is the mediator because God is holy and sinful people need a mediator if they're going to enjoy a relationship with the holy God. But the third point revealed at Sinai here, which is awesome, is that God graciously calls his people, even this sinful people, to approach his holiness and to enter into a unique and beautiful relationship with them such that his holiness doesn't consume them. It transforms them. My favorite verses in this chapter are verses 3 through 6. And I want to read those with you, drawing out some things. So, so God calls Moses up on the mountain. And then verse 3, we, we read, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying this. Thus says, or excuse me, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That is a great verse, friends. Verse 4 is awesome. He's calling on these people to say, you're eyewitnesses. You've seen my salvation. I thwarted your enemies. They were too strong for you. But I took care of it. And then I took you up like I was like a big eagle. And I took you on my wings and I carried you out of slavery. But he doesn't here just say, "I, I carried you out of slavery. What does he say? I brought you to myself. Real freedom, real salvation was never just about not being a slave. It was about being a child of God. And he says, I saved you by grace before you started to know me. I rescued you. That's gospel grace. He's reminding them what he's done for them. And then in verse five, he calls them to respond with trust and love and covenantal faithfulness. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, respond to my love for you by loving me. This is just first John four nineteen stuff, right? We love because he first loved us. 
And he says, if you live as my covenant people, here's what you're going to get to enjoy. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. He says, I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm king of all nations. And yet I've chosen you, Israel, to be my treasured possession. That's a beautiful phrase. Everybody say treasured possession. They're special to God. They're holy to God. He set his love on them, bound his love to them. He says here, if you'll obey me, you're going to get to enjoy this. But as we keep reading the story, we're going to find out that they disobey him. And because of that, they don't get to enjoy the full benefits of their covenant relationship. And yet he keeps covenant with them. When they're unfaithful, he remains faithful. And he keeps saying, still, you're my treasured possession. Still, you're my treasured possession until the day when things get made right, which is again pointing us forward to Jesus. Then he continues and says this. And you shall be to me, and here's the words that I took the sermon title from. We just, we finally got here. But this is glorious. A kingdom of priests. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I said a second ago the mount was called holy. Also the people are called holy. I left that one out. You're not going to be consumed by my holiness. You're going to come to share in my holiness. You're going to be a holy nation. And part of what it means that you're going to be a holy nation set apart by my grace and love is that you're going to be a kingdom of priests. So everybody say a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, when we say a kingdom of priests, that's like saying the kingdom of David. That means David is the king and he has authority. Like saying a kingdom of God. That means God is a king and he has authority. When we say a kingdom of priests, here's what it means. You are priests and you have authority. So God is saying to the people of Israel, not only am I going to forgive you and cleanse you, but the relationship I'm I'm calling you into is one that gives you a powerful purpose and it gives you authority. Your purpose is to be a light to all nations, to use the words of Isaiah that Jesus picks up. Your purpose is to just like Moses as a mediator is representing God to the people and the people of God. Israel has this vocation to represent the true God to the nations. And then to intercede for the nations with God. They are a priestly people. They've been blessed to be a blessing to all nations, as God said to Abraham back in Genesis. And not only are they priests who have this purpose of bringing God to the nations of the earth, they are a kingdom of priests. This is the Old Testament, friends. And God is already saying to Israel, all of you as a community, there's distinctions within the community. There's people who are called priests within the community. But as a community, you have a priestly function, but you also have a kingly function. You have authority to bring my goodness and peace into the world. That's what's being said here. Now, as we move towards... The close, we we get to make explicit what the New Testament frequently emphasizes, which is this point. All three of these things, God is holy. Sinful people need a mediator to have good relationship with the holy God. And God graciously calls us into this special relationship with him. All three of those things are signposts pointing forward to a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that's not... The judgment of John Mark Hart, that's explicitly taught in the New Testament. So if you got your Bible, I'm going to do a little Bible drill with you for these last few minutes. I want you to look at what the New Testament says about the greater fulfillment of these realities in Jesus Christ. First, flip over to Hebrews 13 in your phone or in your Bible if you have one. If you don't, that's okay. I'll just read it to you. 
Hebrews 13. I'm going to read you several verses. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but I'm going to start in verse 18. He is talking to Christians, people like you and me, the author of Hebrews. And listen to what he says. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken, for they could not endure the order that was spoken. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So in verses 18 through 21 of Hebrews 12, what he's saying is you're not coming to Mount Sinai because what he's about to say is you're coming to something better than Mount Sinai. It's not that God has ceased to be holy at Mount Sinai. The people experienced the edge, the fringe of God's holiness. But Jesus is taking you to the center. That's what he's about to argue. He continues in verse 22. You have not come to Sinai. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the other great mountain of the Old Testament, Sinai and Zion. But he's not saying literal Zion, which is Jerusalem, it's where the temple was built. He's saying the heavenly Zion, of which the real mountain in Jerusalem was just a copy. And here's what we read. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering. Before I finish reading this, I got to help you notice some, some things. Verb tense, you have come. Preposition, you, talking to Christians. So, Christ Community Church, I'm talking to y'all right now. Everybody say, this is about us. And present, actually past tense, you have come. You have come. Christian, when you got saved, here's the reality. You were brought into spiritual realities that you can't see, but they're no less true just because you can't see them. So right now we're sitting at church in South Oklahoma City. Santa Fe South Middle School and a gym. There's metal chairs. It's very hot. That's all true. That's reality. But there is another reality that we can't see. And look what it says. It says we are just as truly gathered now in the heavenly Zion. This is what like it's like what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. where He says you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have brought we have been brought into the city of the living God. We are in heavenly Jerusalem right now. We are gathered in the presence right now. See it or not. Believe it or not. If you've trusted in Christ, you are gathered into the presence of innumerable angels. So many angels, you couldn't count them if you could see them. In feastal, what does it say? In feastal gathering, that means they're dressed up for a big food party. There's a big feast. Heaven is already celebrating God's salvation as if it's been consummated. Waiting for that day. And we are gathered into that feast. We're already participating in the great festival of God's salvation. Every day. As Christians. Even when we're living in the struggle. And walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We're, it's always feast day in Christ. That's what's being said. And who, what else are you coming to? And to the assembly of the firstborn. Who are enrolled in heaven. And to God. That's the best part. To God. We're coming into the presence of the Holy One. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What's this stuff about the firstborn and the spirits of the righteous made perfect? It means today when we sung praise songs, we were thinking about Jesus, and we were thinking about what we're going to do later today, and then we were thinking about God, and then we were thinking about what was happening around us, 
and all, you know, we were worshiping God and getting a little distracted and worshiping again. And unbeknownst to us, we were in the presence of Christ Jesus. And not just of Christ Jesus, but of millions of angels that we couldn't see as we're worshiping God. We're entering into spiritual union, not only with Christians all over the world right now, but we're entering into spiritual union with who? With the Apostle Paul, with Moses, with St. Francis of Assisi, with St. Teresa of Avila, Amy Carmichael, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you name it, your grandmother or grandfather who died in Christ. He says, you right now are already in the presence of those saints worshiping the living God, though you can't see it. How could that happen? How could it happen if Moses was scared, if the people were going to die, and I'm feeling at least as sinful as Moses and the Israelites? How could it be? Well, we've been brought deeper into the center of holiness without being consumed because we have a better mediator. And that's what the text continues to say. Look at verse 24. The best part is, and you have been brought to Jesus. The mediator, that's the word, everybody say mediator, of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I don't have time to chase the Abel thing right now, but here's the point. Jesus died on the cross and rose again. If we trust in him, his blood removes all sin from us so that we don't just come to the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai. We go all the way to the center of heavenly Zion and we're not consumed by his grace. It goes on to give a warning not to refuse Christ. And I'm skipping down. The end of the chapter says this. Therefore, let us be grateful. Can somebody say thank you, God? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord is a New Testament thing, too, guys, for our God is a consuming fire. He's not any less holy. His holiness doesn't change. And we've been taken deeper into his holiness. But the difference now is we're in Christ. So the consuming fire consumes our sin, but it doesn't consume us. It makes us beautiful. Not only does Jesus show us the reality of God's holiness and is Jesus the great mediator, but as we conclude, we got to go to first Peter two because Jesus reveals to us the fulfillment of our identity, which was just hinted at in Exodus 19. First Peter two verses nine and ten say this, but you, he's talking now to New Testament saints from every nation, Jew and Gentile Christians. So everybody say this is us. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood is another way of saying a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me just say a few things in closing before we go to the Lord's Supper. Here's what it's saying. Jesus, by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again, created this scenario that by faith in Jesus, without doing anything to earn God's favor, I can just trust in Christ and Jesus takes me all the way to the center of God's holiness where I can enjoy the beauty of the Lord and be transformed by it. And it's not just me. When I get there, I find the living God and I find 
community. I find all of you. And here's what the text says about us. We've received mercy. We're treasured. We're loved. And it says a couple other things. It says we're a chosen race and a holy nation. Now, those are precious words to me this week. Because this week, the headlines all across America are including words like white supremacist terrorist. And the stories are telling stories about this guy who goes and targets his, his xenophobia leads him to hate. His fear leads him to hate. He goes and targets immigrants and shoots innocent people. So now all over the country, people are scared. And hate begets hate. Bitterness begets bitterness. And so log into Facebook or Twitter this week at your own risk, right? Red, brown, yellow, black and white, hating each other. Bitterness begetting bitterness. And The reality of racism, the reality of hatred, the reality of war and division in our world is such that we might start to ask, is there any hope? Is there ever a solution? And the answer of the Bible is there is a solution and it has has a name. It's a person. His name is Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, you all, we got Native Americans in the room, white folk in the room, Latino folk in the room, African-American folk, all kinds of folk, Filipino All in the room. And we are one in Jesus. We don't have the option of staying bitter at each other. We don't have the option of hating each other based on skin color or culture or ethnicity or politics. We're one in Christ. We are a chosen race. Singular. Red, brown, yellow, black and white. One chosen race in Jesus Christ. We are a holy nation. Not just us, but... I'm thinking of places that I've worshipped over the last few years, like in London, a huge, beautiful cathedral where Christians have worshipped since the 6th century. And then in Cuba, a, uh, there was a church that had built a church building and the government tore it down. So they were back again, 40 people with chairs sitting under a carport worshipping Jesus. Both of those, every time they gather, are coming into the presence of innumerable angels dressed for a feast and us. One family. One family in Christ. And I just remember one of my heroes, John Perkins, he was leading a Bible study in the morning several years ago. And I remember him. He just paused in the middle of his Bible study. And he said, you know how you can tell the difference between Jesus and politics? Isn't that a great question? How can you tell the difference between Jesus and politics? He said, politics tells you who to hate and Jesus tells you who to love. And what we're seeing here is there is hope for a divided, divided world because there is a Lord who came to make us one holy nation. But not only that, he came to make us a royal priesthood. And as we get to the Lord's Supper now, here's what we're saying. When Jesus saves us by grace, when we trust in Christ, not only is he forgiving our sins and bringing us into relationship with God, but the fire of God's holiness is going to work to live inside of us, to change us, to give us power and authority and a purpose. You have a priestly purpose and you have a kingly purpose, sons and daughters of God. So as we go to the Lord's Supper, I want you to say, we are priests. That means we have a responsibility to intercede for the nations and to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. But not only do we have that responsibility, that privilege, that purpose, but we have power because everybody say we are kings. We have royal authority. It may feel sometimes that we're a minority. It may feel that we're persecuted. That may even be true pretty much all the time in our daily lives. But there is an invisible spiritual reality in which the Bible is saying to us, you have authority And the spiritual realm. You're a kingdom of priests. By God's grace. And he's saying trust in the grace of Jesus. And walk in that reality. Because if you do. 
there, there will be a joy and a love and a courage that transcends your circumstances. Because you remember who is God? He's the Holy One. He's the gracious one who calls us into his presence. And who am I? I am a member of the body of Christ. One holy race empowered with authority and purpose from God to make all things new. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord's table. Just meditate on this reality. Meditate on who God is and who you are in Christ. And Lord, as we're preparing our hearts now to continue worshiping through the Lord's Supper and through song, give us reverence. Give us awe before you. Help us to know that you are holy and you are gracious. Lord, where we have grown spiritually casual, would you awaken trembling in us? Where we are laboring under false condemnation, would you remind us of your grace revealed through Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator? Lord, where we're feeling weak or defeated, would you remind us that we're a holy nation, a kingdom of priests? Give us grace to believe the gospel. Bless the bread, bless the cup, bless our hearts to receive the body and blood of Jesus in faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.